Hello and welcome to One Digital's COVID-19 Employer Advisory Podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to provide business leaders with the latest commentary on evolving business and economic news that impacts healthcare, business, and the workplace. In each episode, our One Digital advisors will be addressing evolving coronavirus situations, translating them for employers so they can be proactive for their organizations and develop their business planning strategies. Good afternoon. Welcome to today's COVID-19 Employer Advisory Session. My name is Allison Lantieri. I'm the Senior Vice President of Marketing and Customer Experience for One Digital. I'm also the moderator for today's discussion. The session today is designed specifically to offer guidance to employers impacted by workforce reduction who are expecting a significant reduction in revenue and who need aggressive strategies now. Now to our panelists. Please welcome Camry Blazing, Managing Principal from our One Digital Atlanta office, Bob Marino, Principal and Senior Benefits Consultant from our One Digital Connecticut office, and Annette Bechtold, Senior Vice President of Regulatory Affairs and Reform Initiatives. A note about the format for today's session. Today, this will be a 30-minute conversation with these three advisory leads followed by a live Q&A. Today we'll cover benefit plan design implications, contribution changes and buy-downs, and items specific for self-funded employers, including ERISA and ACA considerations. Let's begin. Camry, as employers enact furloughs and reduced hours, we're being asked about the medical carrier responses to continuing active coverage during this period. How are carriers responding? This is a question we're getting a lot right now. I actually got off a call earlier today on this exact same topic with one of our um, impacted employers here in the Atlanta area. But I think the good news is the majority, the major medical carriers have relaxed their requirements to allow benefit continuation through furlough, reduction in hours, layoff, assuming that at least one person remains actively employed at the plan sponsor, the employer. We've seen um, Anthem relaxing their requirements through May 31st. They put out a very uh, clear, uh, detailed FAQ on how they're handling this piece that's been very helpful to us. They are requiring um, coverage be offered on a uniform, non-discriminatory basis. They're also requiring that the premium contributions remain more or less the same as they were previous to the layoffs. I think that will be an interesting point when we're gonna circle forward here in a bit and talk about Um, the ability to change contributions mid-year may be a strategy for some employers. So I think um, if we have an employer that is uh, trying to do both, you know, deal with a major uh, extension to their um, uh, continuation of coverage to furloughed employees and reduce um, premium contributions, I would say that would take a discussion or an active negotiation to confirm. As of yesterday afternoon, United Healthcare, Aetna, um, Cigna were all saying um, that they would have um, some kind of formal release. We thought by the end of the day yesterday, we're expecting to get it hopefully today. Um, but really what we're hearing them say is that they think they're going to follow the exam- example of um, Anthem in terms of the extension. But it has been, um, you know, it has been really nice to see, you know, so far the extension, but to see this in a more uh, formal way. Um, in terms of self-funded employers, I would say make sure that you're contacting your stop-loss carrier if it is not combined with the medical carrier. 
Um, so if you've got a carved out stop loss or if you have a TPA, that's um, a conversation your consultant can help you to guide through in, in connection with those vendors. Um, and something that we were talking about yesterday, and I think this is really um, a helpful piece that the compliance department has uh, put together. I would just say, remember, it's important that you amend your plan document to allow this. So if your intention is now to um, kind of waive your um, hours requirement or your actively at work requirement on your plan to have employees be allowed to continue active coverage for some period of time while they're reduced in hours, no longer working on a furlough, we would need to amend the plan document to allow it. Um, and our compliance team put together a template plan amendment that is for a stated purpose for a duration of time that I think makes that amendment really easy. Um, that's actually been posted out on the hub um, and will be um, something we'll link out to at the end. Uh, so let's move over to Bob. As cash flow concerns are increasing, some of our customers are seeking premium holidays or other relief from the carriers. What are you hearing? Yeah, so thank you, Allison. And, and I appreciate everyone being on this call. I know that we are in such unprecedented times. It goes without saying, and that's probably overused uh, as, as we've heard so, so many times now. But truthfully, we're all in this together, and we'll all get through this together as well. So feel free to, to work with all of us and, and to help you get through, you know, the questions and issues and so forth that you're all facing. But in terms of the question about cash flow and what employers can do, at least at this point in time, there we have reached out to all the major carriers. And really what we're trying to accomplish with, with our request was to find out if there was any way to help employers that are faced with cash flow issues right now. And could the grace period be extended outward. So the typical grace period that most carriers have in place is 30 days, as you guys may very well know. Well, what we've been asking is, can that be extended you know, 30 days, 60 days, or what have you? So the, the clear response that we got from just about all the major carriers, as I mentioned, is that they would assess that on a case-by-case -case basis. So while they didn't flat out say, no, that's not gonna be something they cannot do, what they are saying is, please bring us those situations as they occur. If somebody is in dire straits, obviously they're going to evaluate those and, um, and make some decisions around there. Now, interestingly, what the ancillary carriers have been saying, and these are the carriers that offer life insurance, dental plans, vision plans, and so forth. What they have been doing is actually establishing an extension to their grace periods from 30 days to 60 days. Now, I just caution you, that's not all of them. So please check with your advisor or please check with the insurance carriers themselves before you assume that you can extend your premium payments outward. And just so you know, too, what we're talking about here is really an extension or a delay in the timing of when you need to make that premium payment. What I'm not referring to is a premium holiday. Mm -hmm. And that's not forgiving the premium payment altogether. Okay. And could I, add, could I add a thought to that, Bob? You know, I was thinking about what you and I were talking about um, just before the session. We saw one of our, um, one of the national uh, TPAs, which was Maritain, come in with some guidance that they may allow suspension or a delay in payment of medical claims. It would require payment of administration, stop loss, and pharmacy claims, but that there may be an ability to delay payment timing 
for funding medical claims. And I think I say that only to mention to our self-funded employers that, you know, we're talking about premium delays, but I think there is a conversation to be had with your, uh, with your administrators if we need to try to help negotiate something on your behalf related to, you know, self-funded payment timings. Yeah, great point. Yeah, thank you. And then I, I think, too, one of the things we talked about before was, you know, if, if you need to refer to information about state-by-state -state individual market open enrollment expansion, that's another piece that's available on the onedigital.com forward slash coronavirus advisory hub. You can find that there. We'll also link to it at the end. So for our next question, let's move over to Annette. I'd like you to address a question our consultants have been getting more of in recent days, and this is about the ACA considerations for variable hour employees in tracking hours or maintenance periods relative to furloughs or reductions. Sure, Allison, thanks. Um, you know, uh, on the tenure, funny enough, yesterday was the 10-year anniversary for the Affordable Care Act. So um, oh. on the heels of that, uh, yeah, we forget about that because of so many other things going on. But, you know, um, applicable large employers, that's who we're talking about. So I know there's a lot of um, business owners that are probably that may not be applicable large employers. So I want to make sure that that everybody understands who we're talking about. If you're an applicable large employer, and that would be somebody that um, um, has 50 or more full-time and full-time equivalents in the, from the previous calendar year, so on average in the previous calendar year. So if you have 50 or more full-time and full-time equivalents in 2019, you are an applicable large employer or an ALE. And so it's these ALEs who are required to offer coverage, and if they don't, they pay an employer shared responsibility payment. So that's who we're talking about. Now, when the original law came out, employers were given an option about how do they count who is full-time. And so when they, were, um, that, when they were given these options, one of the things that employers stepped forward and said is, you know, we understand I'm hiring a full-time person. They're going to work 30 hours or more. That's full-time. I'm hiring a person for 10 hours a week. That's part-time. It was this group of employees that who at the time they hire them, they have no idea whether they're going to actually average 30 hours or more of service. And so it's this group of employees that we're talking about. And one of the, the um, very non-complicated, and I say that very sarcastically, IRS rules that came out um, on how to do that was to use something called a look-back measurement method. So they said, hey, here employers are two ways that you could count whether somebody's full-time or not. One is the monthly measurement method, which basically says that in a given month, if you've averaged uh, 30 hours or more for, per week or 130 hours in that month, you, that's a full-time person, they, they count and they should be offered or they are eligible for that coverage. Um, or the other is this look-back measurement method. So I like to describe this look-back measurement method as kind of this leapfrog effect, and that'll be important as we come forward with these furloughs. So in the leapfrog, Basically, the employer sets a period of time that they're looking back and saying, hey, over this period of time, if I average out these hours, does it average 30? If it does, then that person earns eligibility for a subsequent or a next period of time, regardless of how many hours they work in that time. So now we cut back to this furlough issue here, Ilson, and I think here's the issue. If you've got people and you've been using this look back measurement method as a way of determining who's full time, you can't just say, 
oh, all bets are off now. You actually have to look at who in the last look back measurement period did you say earn that full-time eligibility for the next stability period or the next period of time. If you have a furlough during that period of time, in other words, they're not going to be working a lot of hours, um, but they're still going to be your employee. You must maintain that health coverage for the entire stability period or for as long as they are your employee. So that's the, that's the interesting interrelation here between the, the Affordable Care Act and um, these furloughs that people are considering. Thanks, Annette. Uh, just, uh, did anybody else have anything they wanted to add to that? I do know that this, this furlough question um, and certainly questions about the difference between furlough and layoff and the language that is being used is, is one that's come up, up a lot. I do want to remind attendees that we did have a session this past Friday mm -hmm. Um, specific to FMLA furlough and, and layoff, if they'd like to take a look at that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point, Elsa, because, um, and I think it all comes down to the, a lot of these terms now are things that people haven't used or are in businesses that they've never used, and maybe their handbooks or their plan documents don't even contemplate a word like furlough. Um, they may, it may contemplate things like leave of absence, Mm -hmm. um, or layoff or not. So it's important that you as an employer make sure that if that term is not defined someplace, it needs to be defined for your employees. And it also needs to be defined what is your intent. And really there's two things in play here. Are they going to continue to be your employee? Mm -hmm. Or are you terminating employment? That's the two key pieces. Mm -hmm. And so typically furlough goes with a temporary reduction in hours, but they're still your employee. And layoff typically means you're you no longer have this employer-employee relationship. Mm -hmm. However, we're seeing so many people right now using these terms interchangeably. So my recommendation to, as a kind of an action step for the employers, is whatever you're doing, write down what term you're using, define it, and mm -hmm. what is your intention? Are, do they remain your employee during this this interim period of time till you figure things out, or are they no longer going to be your employee? And then that will take with it a different set of circumstances. Great, great advice. And, and again, that's just one of the things that we're trying to do today. We want to give you things that you can act on today, and, and I think that's a great example of that. Thank you, mm -hmm. Annette. Camry, it's clear that employers in crisis, um, of which there are many, we know from the conversations mm -hmm. we're having on a daily basis, but it's clear that they're seeking immediate cost savings from their benefit program as they focus on sustainability. What changes do you think employers could make immediately to reduce cost? Um, I think there's a number of things. One um, of the quickest would be, in terms of the amount of time that you could enact something, would be to change your contribution strategy. Um, we actually have had several employers reach out to us on this in the last couple of weeks asking about and we are helping them through the process of reducing the employer percentage of the share um, and either paying less towards employee coverage or potentially paying less towards dependents, spouses, um, potentially as well. I think, um, and, and I will say to this, we're seeing, you know, employers are, um, are really across the spectrum and what they're trying to accomplish. We certainly see people who have employees on furlough that are very much trying to pay 100% of benefit costs because they're not receiving pay. We completely, I completely understand that strategy. We also have um, employers who have 
uh, employees actively at work or with reduced hours that are uh, bringing in less revenue and are trying to find ways just to kind of hold it together for a period of time. So, so for those folks in that situation, I think reducing the employer contribution, requiring the employees to pay more, if not for themselves, for their dependents is a potential, certainly uh, way to save money. I would uh, say a few things. One, there are Section 125 plan considerations if you have pre-tax contributions. Um, a change in cost is a permitted event for a mid-year uh, election change. So if the, um, if the cost to the employees increased, that would open up a limited open enrollment uh, in most cases for them to be able to uh, shift to a lower cost plan or you know, drop their benefit election altogether. Um, one, you would want to check to make sure that your plan document allows it. Um, if it does not, it is, uh, it is permissible to be allowed. If your plan is not written that way, we could amend the plan prospectively to be able to make those changes. Um, and the other thing is that the employee's change would need to be consistent with, um, with the event. So basically, it's not a full-blown open enrollment. It would be people being able to shift to lower-cost plans, reduce coverage, eliminate coverage, um, relative to the cost increase. Um, I think the last thing I would say on that is we do still have the Affordable Care Act, so uh, we would wanna test your contributions for affordability. If you are an ALE and you care about that, or I guess if you're, um, a, if you're an employer who cares about that in terms of um, penalty, um, that's something that we could certainly help you through. Well, okay, so then the next question I think would be, would be related to contributions. If employees want to eliminate mm -hmm. Or HSA contributions mid-year. How would you advise an employer there? Medical FSA is less flexible and generally does not allow the same kind of mid-year changes that we just talked about. So, um, you know, unfortunately, if your employees have a medical FSA election uh, made for the year, they're pretty well in it. Um, I think the good news is for lots of folks who are home right now um, with their children, their dependent care um, FSA needs may be different than what they were before. Um, so enrollees can decrease their election amounts if either their work schedule changes or their spouse's work schedule changes, um, which would mean there's a corresponding change in the amount of childcare expense needed. So um, there is a lot of flexibility on the dependent care FSAs. I think that is something that could be communicated out to employees who are trying to find ways to maximize take-home pay. Um, and then in terms of HSA contributions, um, the irrevocable election rules do not apply to those and employees can cease their HSA contributions at any time. Okay, so that's a little more cut and dry. Bob, what have you been offering to customers as you've been trying to offer them guidance around cost saving strategies? Well, yes, actually a lot of the, the similar questions that of course Camry's been faced with and many of us have in our in our business uh, have come up in terms of what can we do and what can we do now to essentially try to save some money only because of obviously the the situation that we're all in so one of the thoughts that we had was if an employer is offering ancillary benefits so i'm talking about life insurance disability plans dental vision plans there could be a possibility and a way to save some money by suspending the offering of those coverages for a period of time. Mm -hmm. Now, it may sound a little bit draconian by taking away benefits, but if we think about what is perhaps in the world that we're living in now, the most important benefit to have, healthcare, prescription drugs. So this could be a way to kind of pare back on the benefit offerings and allow for the retention 
of the most important benefits that employee, employees and their families need today. The other option could be, what if we continue to offer those coverages, but instead of having them paid for by the employer in part or in full, have them paid for by the employee on a voluntary basis? So I'm considering taking that portfolio of ancillary benefits and having that changed from an employer-based program, if you will, or paid pay program, to a voluntary offering that could be made to, to the employees. Now, what happens in that scenario is that program would then have to be underwritten because it's not as simple as having the employer paid rates for any of those coverages just be changed over and have the employees pay for it themselves. And also what goes along with the voluntary offering is, as I said, the underwriting and some underwriting rules like minimum participation. So there needs to be a, a minimum number of employees that do elect to have those voluntary offerings. And then the cost structures for them can be different too. So they may not just be one rate, they could be a table rate of some sort or age banded rates. So there will have to be those considerations made if we're thinking about changing over and trying to reduce costs by offering voluntary benefits as opposed to just the employer paid in full or in part. Now, other considerations around there, notification. So obviously you gotta let your employees know that this is occurring. Mm -hmm. And you want to do that very clearly, and you want to do that and give them as much notice as possible, 45 days if you can, right? Also, the insurance carriers need to be notified, and they typically need to be made aware of a change like this for, in 30 days. So that's usually their window. And then what also will happen here is this will be considered a special open enrollment period, right? Because if you change the structure of your benefit plans in such fashion where they become voluntary, you have to allow a period of time for those employees to actually enroll in those voluntary offerings. So you need to be aware of that. Camry, did you have something you wanted to add? Yeah, I, well, just to piggyback on what you just said, Allison, I agree this is really intended to be kind of thought starters of conversations that we're having with employers about how to extend coverage or how to reduce cost. Um, but we certainly view it as our role to, you know, hold hand, our employer's hands through this process and determine what's best for them. I don't think there's one strategy that's best for every employer. And so thinking about, um, you know, what is the what is the intention? What is the, um, the cash flow or the financial ability to continue certain programs? And then how can we help to minimize the impact and make the right decisions, right? So none of these are easy. So. Um, I think these are to put ideas in people's heads about some of the ways that we think we could help and then, you know, how to carry that through. Um, right. I would say, you know, in terms of piggybacking off of ideas about how we could reduce cost, um, one of the areas that, um, that, you know, employers who are outside of their renewal period, obviously, if you're playing for your renewal, it's pretty easy to think about maybe making slightly more drastic um, cost-cutting decisions at renewal than you may have thought you might if we were talking six weeks ago, right, or a month ago. Um, but I would say there is an ability for employers to reduce benefits, to reduce co-payments, you know, deductibles, um, to make a change, or I guess increase those, to reduce cost in the middle of a plan year. And so I think that's another strategy for employers to consider. Um, if we needed to reduce the plan value to reduce the associated cost, we could certainly do that on a self-funded or a fully insured basis. Um, I think a few things to keep in mind if you are at the point of wanting to do that in the middle of a plan year 
is that it does require 60 days advance notice of any material change to the SBC outside of renewal, and that's an ACA requirement. Um, so this is what we would call more of a midterm strategy, right? If you're looking out 60 days, 90 days, and thinking that we may need to make some more drastic changes, we would want to start communicating that and planning for it now, even if you don't do it later, right? You could always, you could always pull that strategy back if you needed to. Um, we would also need to, you know, uh, amend or modify the plan doc and the SBC, uh, SPD rather, within 60 days after. Um, but that's kind of a step two. I think the main step is getting that advance notice out um, to the SBC. Um, so I think that's something employers may want to consider. Um, just like we talked about a change in uh, cost could trigger, trigger an open enrollment under Section 125, so can a change in benefit. So if there was a decision to reduce benefits, that could open up a special election period, um, assuming that plan document's written to allow it. And um, obviously their one digital consultant can work with them and their carrier to determine the underwriting impact and rating. There's some negotiation to figure out what that would be, but certainly something we could help with. Um, I think a special note for self-funded employers would be don't forget that we need stop loss approval to change your benefits and you know make sure that you've got seamless stop loss coverage. Um, but I think all of those details could be worked through if somebody wants to pursue that strategy. Well, we've definitely heard you know, the other thing about this, uh, the need Sorry. for the potential for an, another special, you know, open enrollment. So I think that's mm -hmm. something people are going to be having to think about. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah, I was going to uh, add one thing, Camry, to what you were saying. Um, there is, um, you know, there are so many rules about your plan document and what you need to document, how you need to do it, and the amount of time and notice. Um, my advice is do do whatever is good for the plan and then figure out how to get your documents up to speed. In fact, the Department of Labor did come out with some leniency and say, hey, look, the rules are in place, but mm -hmm. we're not we're, we're going to have some leniency in the first 30 days. So for the month of April, just work to try to get these things in place that you need to and comply with all the laws. So there is time and use your, you know, obviously use us or use your your uh, benefits professional to help you figure out what those things are once you figure out that right, that right strategy. Mm -hmm. Yep. Excellent counsel on that. That's great. Employers. So um, let's move this question to you, Bob. Some employers are asking about a yeah. shift to individual coverage or sending employees to the marketplace. How could the new ICHRAs or individual coverage HRAs benefit employers in this scenario? So the individual coverage HRAs actually came about toward the end of 2019, and they are uh, they are federally regulated. So there are some uh, some very specific uh, stipulations around how these programs work, and I'll try to be as brief with that as possible here. So these plans were approved toward the end of last year, with an effective date beginning January 1 of 2020. So obviously this year. So what they actually are is a replacement for your employer-sponsored group health benefit, okay? That's what they're designed to replace. And the way that they're designed to replace it is through something called an individual coverage HRA. And the HRA is very similar to an HRA that many of you may be very familiar with, which is helping to offset the cost of deductibles for hospitalizations, outpatient surgeries, or other aspects of your benefit plan. The difference here with this is 
since it actually replaces the group plan that you have in place today, and that replacement could be for your entire employee population, or it could be for a certain segment of that population as you define it. But instead of offering the benefit program that you have today through your group carrier, so you're defining the benefit plans, you're defining the cost for those, you're offering those plans to your employees, they're paying their cost shares, et cetera. What this pro particular program does is, does away with that, the actual individuals that are offered this have to go out on the state exchanges like Access Health Connecticut or to the individual carriers that offer individual plans and actually procure a plan on their own from those sources. It, that could also mean Medicare and Medicaid as well. Where the employer becomes involved is they use a third-party vendor that establishes the individual coverage HRA and the format for administration thereof. So from your perspective as an employer, what your responsibility is going to be is to offer this program and actually fund through that third-party vendor the individual coverage HRA. Now what the third-party vendor is going to do from an administrative perspective is they're going to work with the employee to ensure that they have proof of actual coverage on a monthly basis and then they will then utilize a bank account that's established with the employer to fund that individual HRA. Then that money goes to the actual employee that's enrolled with coverage through that individual individual HRA. So, that was a lot of stuff to hear. And as I said, it's somewhat technical in nature, but it's just a replacement, truthfully, of the programs that you may have in place today. What it does do, though, as it may sound, is it places the burden on those employees to go out and seek out coverage on their own. So that's part of the issue. The other part of the issue to this, even though it is a solution, is that you are still... Uh, you still have to apply, you still have to abide by the ACA rules and the ACA affordability and minimum value rules specifically. So the minimum value rules are designed around the type of benefit plan that's being offered. Does it meet a 60% actuarial value? Most of the programs that are offered through the individual state exchanges meet that requirement and I'm sure that most of the individual plans from the insurance carriers do as well. From an affordability perspective, and here's where it gets a little tricky, is that you as the employer are remembering, remember, you're funding part of this benefit on behalf of the employee through the individual HRA. So the amount that you have to fund through there has to meet an affordability test. And the affordability test is 9.78% of the single rate for that individual's coverage and annual income. Very similar to what the affordability test is under an, a large employer plan or an ALE. The trickiness to this is you as an employer may not know what plan is my employee gonna enroll in. I have no idea. They're going out to the exchange, they're going out to get Medicare perhaps, they're going out to get uh, an individual plan. So there's no idea, you have no idea as an employer what, what the cost of that plan is. So what the federal government did is they set a guideline and they said, 
the way to test the affordability provision for these programs is on the lowest cost silver plan in the marketplace where that employer resides. So at least that gives us a basis of an understanding of how to even calculate what this may cost. Now let me tell you some practical information here. This sounds good in theory because you can actually divest yourself of your group benefit plan, save all that money. It's kind of like pay or play in years past, right? But I can tell you this, I've gone through a couple of these exercises now with some of our larger groups. We've done the math on this and what we've concluded was, surprisingly perhaps, is that the actual cost that the employer would have to pay to meet this 9.78% single cost sale cost plan in that marketplace was actually more than what that employer was funding towards the cost of the benefit plan that they had in place today. So what does that say? Well, I'm adding more cost and I'm adding a, a lot more complexity and I'm actually putting you know, more of the burden on my employees. So it may not be for everyone, but it is an option that we wanted to make you av make available, make you aware of anyway, that is available to you. And potentially this could be a longer term option as well, just by virtue of the fact that in order for you to enact this program, you have to give your employees 90 day notification. That's a rule. So this is a longer term strategy in that regard, but it may be one that is, that is a value and you have to do the, the math on it to make sure that it does meet, meet your needs. And Bob, I just think that the way you describe that is such a great example of how we were trying to consult with our customers every day because certainly, you know, with employers in crisis, it would be easy to make some knee-jerk decisions. And that's a great example where working directly with your consultant can really help you navigate what the right choice is. So, yep. and did you have, want to yeah. add something? Yeah, I do. Um, so on these individual coverage HRAs, uh, as Bob said, it's something that federal government came up with as part of the executive order expanding the opportunity for employers to help with the cost and satisfy their ACA requirement in a little bit different fashion. So it made available to the employers uh, an opportunity to reimburse premium to employees for individual health care coverage, which was prohibited by the ACA prior. So that was the promise and expanded it so employers could reimburse and employees could go buy the coverage that they wanted. So Bob's right in that there is some complexity in just setting it up. Um, but once done, it could be a very viable. And we have had a number of employee employers of different sizes in different places in the country that were actually are, have these in place and it's working well. So it really does come down to what are you trying to accomplish? Is this something that fits your population well? And there are particular rules in doing it right. Um, there are also still some pending rules. Bob talked about the complexity of trying to figure out affordability and it has to be for each resident where they live. There's also pending rules with some safe harbors to make it a little bit easier. So we'll mm. see how those rules come out and I think that might make some difference. We do have a task force running here that's working on all best practices surrounding putting together an, an individual coverage HRA option who are some really good vendors that are out there who will help employers on a turnkey basis. And we hope in the next 60 days to have something 
perfect. Um, and that, that can come out that covers all of those pieces. But in the interim, we're, we're working group by group to help see if this is a viable alternative. We are also working with, a, I also have to say that I'm working with the regulators too, to say, here are the things that don't work so well um, mm -hmm. because they want these to work well, but here are the things that could work better. Here are some of the obstacles for employers with this solution. So we're still advocating on your behalf to, to make these even better and more workable as an opportunity for more employers. Thank yeah. you. I'm sorry, Allison, just one other thought. I'm excited about the task force that's working on how to come up with a more turnkey approach to this. And I think maybe some of that additional guidance and um, some of the work that Annette's team's doing on trying to streamline this could really help. I do really like the idea of how flexible it is to class a population within this particular, you know, um, legislation and that you can think about um, populations differently, right? And I think um, it, for folks who have um, classes of employees that they may want to do something very different for each class, right? I think I also like the fact that, of course, the employees are only reimbursed for the month that they have active coverage, and that's the role of the administrator to vet. So I think, I don't think it's a solution for everybody, but, you know, I remember back 10 years ago now that you're making me remember 10 years ago, it's been ACA, but I remember 10 years ago when we were working on some really heavily impacted industries that um, we're trying to find creative solutions around some of the new ACA requirements. And I do think um, this is, is worth a look for folks who are trying to, um, to think creatively. Um, and I, just as a shout out to the, the uh, resource links that will be coming out at the end of the presentation, there's a really good piece that Annette's team put together that goes a little bit deeper on this. That's great. Thank you for reminding me of that. Um, so one note before we move into the, the last question we had prepared already, uh, the experts, the benefit experts that are answering questions uh, coming through the Q&A, they are receiving a number of questions asking about state by state uh, differences and maybe more local carrier uh, questions. Again, I would say you know, if you can work directly with your one digital consultant to get that information and or um, just hold for a minute and we'll be sharing a resource that anyone can use at the end to ask additional questions. Mm -hmm. so we really want to uh, address now this issue of employers who are self-funded and unique considerations for them. Bob, would you like to take that? Yeah, so let me, yeah, I have some thoughts on this and, uh, and also I'm gonna ask for Camry's help too. Uh, toward the end, but so if anybody out there is contemplating or maybe perhaps now experiencing furloughs, change in enrollment, obviously is what we're talking about here, layoffs perhaps, what you may want to do and what I would recommend you do is to reforecast your projected costs. There could be an impact now on what you had set for a budget, say at the beginning of the year or at a previous date, to what may actually occur you know, in the future as a result of the changes that you're going through. Um, also, and I don't know how popular this might be, but if you are self-insured and you're contemplating down the road that you may have some issues in terms of being able to continue to fund your claims under a self-insured arrangement, there is the possibility, of course, of then changing from self-insured to fully insured. Now, there's a whole lot of things you need to consider when that occurs, but let me just walk you through some of the some of the top ones. As with any major change like that, what is going to occur is your plan is going to be underwritten. 
right? So the cost that you're paying under the self-insured plan, your administrative fees, your stop loss costs, et cetera, those are gonna change because if you are actually going to change to a fully insured arrangement, you're gonna be set with a monthly rate, which is great because what you're in effect doing is capping your liability to those rates on a monthly basis based on your headcount, and then also shifting the risk from yourselves as the plan administrator or the plan to the insurance carrier. Sounds great. However, here's the, the considerations. The plan is gonna be underwritten, which means the insurance carrier is going to wanna see all of the data that you have for your program, meaning demographics, type of uh, claims that you've had, your utilization, all of that information. And then in addition to that, what they're gonna do with that is develop fully insured rates. Those fully insured rates are going to contain some additional cost components that you didn't have in the past under your self-insured plan. Specifically, there's gonna be a risk charge because the insurance company understands that they're gonna be taking on this claim risk that you had previously. So they're gonna charge you something for that. There's also state and federal taxes that might be applicable to these programs now that you didn't have to pay under your self-insured plan. So you're gonna to have to weigh the options here in terms of cost versus risk versus affordability down the road. And then also, if you think about what may happen here from a mechanics perspective, you're taking that self-insured plan, you're converting it to a fully insured plan, you're gonna to begin to pay those fully insured rates to the insurance carrier, right? With your liability cap, which is great. However, you also have to pay the runout claims mm -hmm. of your self-insurance plan. And depending upon how many claims you have or the type of claims that you have, that could be costly. So there could be a, a period of time here where you're actually paying premiums as well as paying those claims too. And then the other point I wanna make about those runout claims in, in specific is you have to be sure that you have stop loss protection for those runout claims. You could have a pending large claim there that once you've canceled your self-insured plan, converted to a fully insured plan, will come, come to be, and that claim is gonna be processed and paid. That could be a, a, a traumatic impact on your budget for sure. So you wanna be sure you have stop loss coverage. Sometimes it's referred to as TLO or terminal liability option. So make sure you check all of that before you engage in, in this type of um, funding change. But it is an option. It is a way for you to cap your liability. It is, it is a way for you to better forecast what your liability may be in the future perhaps, or from an affordability perspective, it could be the better approach for you. Now there is one other aspect to this too, which is the fiduciary liability that you as the employer have under your self-insured plans. So I'm gonna defer that to, to Camry to tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, thanks, Bob. You know, I've been thinking a lot about um, a situation in 2008 when we went through the market downturn, um, which really um, impacted employers quickly, maybe not quite this quickly, but fast. And uh, we had a very large employer that was a lumber uh, distributor for home builders, very large company that um, had extended credit to the folks who um, bought from them and then all of a sudden nobody was buying and their business very sadly collapsed very quickly after 40 50 years of um, you know of being stable and growing and I remember the conversations I had with the CFO as we were working through those issues and they were really trying to come up with so many ways to save the business which 
of course we all were and respect and care about deeply. But I, you know, sometimes caring about somebody is telling them the hard truth. And I will say, I remember the conversations that we had to say, he needed to remember his fiduciary responsibility on that plan, right? So as a plan fiduciary, he needs to act in the sole best interest of plan participants and their beneficiaries. And he has a duty to act prudently. And if he understood that the company may not have the cash flow or the revenue to pay claims in 90 days or 120 days, um, he really needed to think about the fact that they were making a promise to pay today by allowing people to continue to seek services and incur claims that we all understand the claim lag between incurred and paid to say, if we're incurring claims today and we're allowing people who are plan participants to freely go use services that we believe have a strong belief that we will not be around to pay in 60, 90, 120 days, we are not acting, we're not fulfilling our fiduciary duty. And I would say if cash flow or business stability are real issues, and if there's a risk of maintaining the self-funded plan, um, we need to talk about it and think about how to best support you. Because we can't be making a promise to pay something that we're not going to pay down the road. And a fiduciary is liable up to their full personal net worth in this situation. So this isn't just that the business is gone and somebody walks away. If you see it coming, we've got to do what we can to protect the plan participants. And I would say, I certainly hope that no one on the call is in that position, but just know that we will, um, it was better for this employer to terminate the plan even before they closed than it was to continue to keep that plan up and running. Um, and we did terminate the plan in that situation. The business ended up closing about 60 days later, which was really heartbreaking. Um, but we were trying to do what we could to protect the plan participants and the fiduciaries in that situation. So um, I, I think that's something that's hard to, to talk about and to think about, but we really want to you know, give the best advice we can. Yeah. Great point. That's a great point, Cameron. Thank you for sharing that. So. Um, let's go ahead and move to some of the common trends and the questions. I'm just going to start asking these of the panel and, you know, whoever wants to take it can. Unsurprisingly, there are a lot of questions still related to furlough. Um, mm -hmm. And again, I know that we have covered that, but it does seem to be a pain point. So I think this first question is probably a good one, maybe for you, Annette. It's relative to COBRA and its applicability to furlough versus a temporary layoff. layoff. Mm -hmm. Could you respond to that? Sure. So, um, so COBRA, there's a couple of ways that COBRA is, um, becomes um, the methodology for extending benefits. So when you think about continuation, which is what COBRA is, that means for some reason you're no longer eligible for the plan, but there is the ability for just certain circumstances for that plan to continue as if you just like any other active person. So that's, that just like any other active person becomes fairly important. So when you think about um, what are the triggers for COBRA? One is termination. So the employee is terminated. Um, the second one is a reduction in hours. And those are the two that we're going to see most often here. So if it's a layoff and you are terminating your employment, there's going to be no more employer-employee relationship. That termination, COBRA is, uh, is that person's eligible for COBRA so long as there are other active people 
that are, are also going to be on the plan. Because what COBRA affords that terminated person is this opportunity for the same coverage as every other active person. So if you as a business are closing your doors and you're not offering coverage to anyone because you're, you're not going to be in, in existence or you're laying off all your staff that you're terminated, you can't have a group health plan. So therefore there's nothing to continue because there are no active employees that have that coverage. So in that regard, COBRA would not apply. However, if you're laying off a particular part of your staff, terminating that employer employee relationship or furloughing them, keeping them as employees, but reducing hours, both, either one of those would make somebody eligible for COBRA and that employer would offer that continuation because there are still other people, active people on that plan. I hope that helps. Thank you. Did anybody else want to, to add to that? Uh, I'm going to add something to that and I think you explained that really well in that. Um, I would just say I think this furlough conversation is a little bit confusing because I think you could almost go either way with what you're choosing to do with your employees in that situation. So the furlough is that your employee is going out on a unpaid leave, right? And you are intending to bring them back. That's how we would typically be thinking about a furlough, right? They are still your employees. They're not working hours, um, but you're intending to have them return to work. In that case, because as Annette said, there's a reduction in hours that could trigger a COBRA event, right? What the carriers are, what I was talking about at the very kind of beginning of the hour is that the medical carriers are allowing continuation of active coverage during that period, right? Um, so they are not requiring, um, at least for the major medical carriers, there may be a regional carrier that's different, but for the major national carriers, they are not requiring um, termination of benefits and an offer of COBRA at that point. So I do think there's a bit of a choice for most employers who have furloughed employees to say, is would I like to continue active benefits through this period? and pay all of it or pay, you know, collect the employee contribution as I have been doing before, um, or would I want to trigger a COBRA event? I don't know, Annette, if you want to add to that. Yeah, the only other thing I would say is COBRA, again, applies if you have 20 or more, it, you know, so you have to look at, if you're a really small group, then state continuation would apply. So you have to look at what rules apply to you. So yeah, I agree, Camry, number one, Figure out what it is you want to do. What do you want your employees to have, right? Do you want to continue their benefits? If so, let's figure out the best way to do that. Number two, figure out now what your insurance carrier is allowing. Mm -hmm. So those two things in combination are going to dictate what your next actions are. Mm -hmm. If I could just make one additional comment, one additional comment to that, and that is what I've been asked interestingly from a strategic perspective about furloughs versus layoffs has been well our longer term scenario might be we have to lay off these employees but what if we were able to afford at least in the short term to pay for their employee benefits for a period of time so they would then furlough them for a period of time pay for their benefits keep them continuously covered and then at the time when they had to actually terminate those employees, they would be eligible for COBRA and they would have the full extension of COBRA on the back end. So this, this would be a strategy whereby you would be able to provide benefits to those employees or they would have access to benefits for a longer period of time, starting from the furlough 
through the termination, if you will, or layoff. Thank you, Bob. Yeah, I want to add one additional thing, uh, one point of consideration for employers. So remember that if you start down the COBRA path, whenever that timing is, but once they go to COBRA, if for some reason the employees can no longer pay that premium and they're covered to terminate for non-payment, they will be ineligible to get individual coverage in the marketplace until the next open enrollment, which will be November 1st for January 1 of 2021. So it's really important that you think they would not qualify for any special enrollment period if the reason that their COBRA terminates is for non-payment. A special enrollment period in the individual market comes up if somebody's on COBRA only once COBRA is totally exhausted, not for non-payment. They'd have to write out that full 18 months. So it's but just it, something to keep in mind as you're thinking about um, how you want to lay all of this out. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, great. Camry, did you have something you wanted to add? No, I was just thinking that um, if the underlying COBRA, if the plan terminated altogether um, and then the COBRA terminated, that would allow somebody to go get individual coverage, correct? Yeah. Yeah, if the, if the plan itself terminates, then yeah. that's fine. But if the plan is still ongoing and and the only reason uh, COBRA's ending for that person is because they didn't pay, <laughs> that creates this gap in coverage for, yeah. that, for that individual. Right. Okay, great. So we do, we do have a lot of questions still coming in. Um, so I would say, for those of you that have questions specific to FMLA, I would ask you to refer back to the advisory session that was held on Friday. There is a replay for that available on the One Digital COVID-19 Advisory Hub, um, which is, the again, the website address for that is on the slide that we're displaying right now. Um, but here is one that I've seen a couple of times, which is around the special enrollment periods that we have been mentioning. Um, a little bit. There's a question about whether or not those special enrollment periods would be treated as a qualifying event, meaning could they add on dependence to their enrolled plan during that time? Anyone want to take that? It depends. It depends. <laughs> I know you're so, in a <laughs> It depends because um, each, each uh, if we're talking about the individual market, the private market and the exchange markets define those rules differently. And state-based exchanges may have some different rules than the federal-based exchanges. So that's why I want to say it depends. Um, some of them specifically on the new special enrollment period. So there's um, a number of states, maybe about nine states, who are expanding some of their special enrollment periods. They're not extending them or expanding them for people who have coverage. The only expansion that's coming are for people who have no coverage. In other words, they don't have group health, they don't have individual, they passed this last open enrollment period of November 1st to December 15th and did not apply for coverage for 2020. That's what they're doing this special enrollment period. And I've seen some of those actually say, yes, you can add dependents, et cetera. Um, for this new extended period if you did, failed to do so during the last. So it really comes to whether or not they're losing coverage or whether or not they do qualify for these new 
special enrollment periods. So I would say haven't seen any that say, okay, um, just because of COVID, now we're opening up enrollment for you to add your dependents. Um, there might be a few carriers doing that, but I, ha I haven't seen that anything globally with regard to the rules on special enrollment periods. Okay. Now, qualifying events, if they're thinking, if they're thinking about um, if they're changing the cost of their plan or they're changing something in their plan, that may cause a group open enrollment where they could, um, where dependents could elect to come on or off. So okay. it just depends what, what enrollment periods we're talking about. Yeah. So there's a lot of rules. Annette, there is a question here that I think would be good for you. And if you just, you know, if if uh, you can answer it briefly and then we can point folks to the Thursday session, we can do that as well. But one of these questions says, does the federal emergency paid sick leave run concurrently or separately from the Federal Emergency Family Medical Leave Expansion Act? So there are two different things, right? So you have, um, uh, but what they did was they sort of made them seem like they can run concurrently. So what the emergency paid sick leave does is it allows two weeks of paid sick time. There's rules to how much that is, but it's basically 80 hours for full-timers or an average of what uh, somebody who's not a full-timer would have worked over a two-week period. That's all that's involved in that. What the FMLA expansion is, is very specific only for those individuals who are affected and they're on leave, can't work, can't telework because They've got to take care of their kids because school was closed or where whoever uh, their daycare was closed, whatever place to care for their children is closed. That's the only expansion on that FMLA. The first 10 days of that is unpaid. So conceivably, your emergency paid sick leave would cover that period of 10 days because that's all you're getting in for emergency paid sick leave. And then your FMLA would kick in for the next 10. So, and for somebody who's taking uh, leave for a different reason, either they have symptoms under the paid sick leave, they've got, you know, symptoms for that. Um, so that is something different. And if you're, you've got your normal FMLA, um, it would, pro those, those two things will go together. Your FMLA uh, for, for illness for yourself or care for somebody else is typically unpaid. So the time period would run concurrently, yes. Um, I have one more that I'd like to ask, and then I'm going to share this resource that we have for everyone that they can send additional questions to if we haven't been able to get them to today. But this last question, and we've received many that are specific to what we're terming essential businesses, right? So this individual is saying they're an essential business that's still open and operating. It's a manufacturing environment. Uh, they have a handful of employees who do not want to work due to fear of contacting the virus, which is a scenario we've heard about before. They're currently having them use PTO time to cover that time off, um, but many are complaining about having to use the PTO time. Do you have any recommendations of what other things that they could do um, to support those employees in that instance? Um, if they're working, they're working. You know, these um, the the law was meant to cover closures and people who can't work. 
Um, mm -hmm. So I think the duty of care for the employer is still there about making sure that those employees are safe. Um, they would need to look at whatever their leave of absence policies are, understand whether there are other precautions or things that they can take to protect those employees. Um, I think that's something they probably need to discuss with their employment council to figure out what the best course of action is in their particular circumstance. So if they're in an essential business, it's tough. Now, um, yeah, so especially health, you think about healthcare workers, et cetera, and you know, whether or not people are comfortable or not working, um, that's a really tough one right now. And I don't know that there's, there's any one blanket answer to give somebody. So um, what I'd like to do at this point is share this new resource that, that we have made available uh, for folks that have questions like this. So we have set up a COVID-19 support team and anyone, whether you're a customer or not, you can send an email to COVID19support at onedigital.com during this time. I would like to take a moment to thank um, so much Camry, Bob, and Annette for your uh, leadership and participation today. And thank you to all of our attendees for joining us. And again, we do hope that you've found this impactful and you've received some actionable uh, insight that you can use. Please connect with your One Digital consultant who can help you put some of what you've heard today into action. Um, one more thing that I just wanted to, to mention to you is that since the situation does change minute by minute, the information that we are providing also changes minute by minute. If you are regularly going back to the One Digital COVID-19 advisory hub, you will see there that any new content that we have is designated as new. So you can see right away uh, what has changed. Another note is that by the end of this week, we will have a dedicated uh, small business section on the hub because so many of the concerns are different for small businesses than they are for larger. We wanna make sure that um, we're giving you that information when you have questions. Thank you again. Stay well, stay connected with your family, friends, and coworkers, and we'll see you again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of One Digital's COVID-19 Employer Advisory Podcast. There's never been a time more than now during which our commitment to standing as one with our customers and providing peace of mind is more important. We are committed to providing the guidance you need to make complex decisions even in the most challenging times. For additional resources, thought leadership, or for the latest employer information related to the COVID-19 pandemic, please visit onedigital.com forward slash coronavirus. Thank you.